Hey everybody, it's Craig Valentine back with just another conversation, Turbulence Training Podcast. And last time we had John Romanello, this time we have someone who's equally as entertaining, Alan Cosgrove. So Alan, welcome to the call. Oh, thanks for having me, Craig. Awesome to have you. Always good to have you, and, and people are always looking forward to more interviews with you. So let's start with a real tough question. What did you learn about training in 2011? Wow, that's a good one. Uh, I, think I know it's a good one. Uh, I have good questions. You do, you do ask good questions. You told me we would just talk about soccer and beers. All right. All right. Uh, I fooled you. We'll, we'll talk about boxing, too, because I think you fooled me. Here's the here's the, the thing, and it was probably through um, some of my uh, meetings. Uh, I, I speak on the Perform Better Tour, as, as a lot of people know, so I get to hang out with uh, cool people like Mike Boyle and Todd Durkin and Greg Cook uh, quite a bit throughout the year. So it was a conversation on self-limiting exercise that I had with Greg Cook. And Greg uses self-limiting exercise to rehabilitate a movement pattern. But the idea being that you can't do... There's certain exercises, for example, that you can't do wrong. Um, or, or once you do it wrong, there's immediate feedback that your technique is off. So uh, an easy example is a, a bottoms-up kettlebell press. Once your, your core goes or your, your glute contraction goes or your grip strength goes, there's immediate feedback on that. And this came out of work from the guy who wrote Born to Run, uh, Chris McDougall, I think, he said that running was originally a self-limiting exercise, is that we ran and then our feet would hurt if our technique was off, or if it hurt our joints too much, we'd limit the volume. And rather than just evolve, he's a big barefoot running guy, but rather than just use that technique to gradually improve our fitness, we tried to circumvent that by using padded soles, padded, uh, you know, training shoes. Uh, and hence the birth of it, the fat soul, and, and now we've circumvented that feedback loop so you can run further, and it's actually not been beneficial because you can now run to the point, you can run with bad form, and you can run and get injured if you overuse it. So the way I think, Craig, is, right, how can I take this? How can I take what a restaurant is doing and use that for marketing for my business? How can I take you know, something I'm seeing online or offline and, and flip it and, and use it another way. So I started thinking about, could we use this with our general fitness clients in some way? And so what we started doing at Results Fitness is a lot of our fat loss exercise selection are based on self-limiting exercises such as uh, pushing the sled, uh, the ropes, whereas the, the immediate feedback of whether you're doing it. You can't do it wrong. You can't push the sled wrong. It just stops. You can't really do the ropes wrong, right, the, the battling ropes. I think the goblet squats, they have such feedback. Um, a lot of the suspension training devices, the TRX, where doing push-ups and rows, there's immediate feedback when you've lost form that you can't stabilize. And I think when I look back, I think that was some of the benefits uh of the original stability ball training, and people were using stability balls, it was self-limiting. You couldn't mess it up, and then people got carried away with it, right, and stopped using it for what it's for. So the thing that I've learned is that maybe, maybe this is my long way of explaining it, maybe sets and reps and that type of programming 
is, a, is an obsolete measure. Because now I can take this deconditioned fat loss person and I can work them to the absolute limit metabolically with self-limiting exercises without the pounding of traditional cardio, without joint injury of, of doing just high rep circuits. That this is, these exercises have this built in like a spell check is the best phrase I can do. It automatically corrects you. You know, so it's, uh, I'm exploring that a little bit more, but that was the, uh, the, the biggest, uh, sort of breakthrough in our, our training. Um, aside from that, some stuff we also talked about is I think that there's, there's maybe two types of, met- the, the original idea of metabolic resistance training, um, was to use weight training as a fat loss or a cardio tool. And that, and originally people would do heavy strength work and cardio and then it, you and I sort of were always talking that there's this, this zone in the middle of metabolic resistance training. And that's what we did for a while. And I think now that within that, we still have to have a heavy component and a lighter component. So there's still a little bit of a, of a, of a heavier emphasis and a lighter emphasis within that. And we're getting good results with that. But the, the big one was the self-limiting exercise and, and how we we're using that. Yeah, I think people would be interested in hearing how you set up the training with your clients. I know we've talked about this with, for our certified trainers, but not for our general audience. So, And it inspired me to do the May turbulence training um, MRT program because we have the heavy Monday, and then we did a, a more of a conditioning metabolic, I call it MCT, metabolic conditioning training on Tuesday, then a day off, then a, then a repeat of the heavy and then the conditioning one. Now, how do you guys actually do it in your facility and uh, you explained it to me last November uh, why you guys did this when I was down to see you, but uh, you can just explain why you guys decided to throw in the, the group classes as well. Well, the the big thing was is I I don't think there's anyone listening who who can at this you know point can doubt the superiority of interval training in terms of a fat loss agent. So with a general fitness and fat loss clients, we, we always use strength training as the cornerstone of our program. I think it's the best use of your time. Uh, when you look at Christopher Scott's work, when you start looking at the actual real calories burned, it's way higher than, than any type of cardio training. But you can't do that, you know, four or five days in a row. Like, it's hard to do that. And that's kind of how the split routine from bodybuilding came in. And I think we lost our way with general fitness chasing that model. So we're having people perform uh, two full-body weight training sessions a week and one to two interval training sessions. What I was finding is that at some level, especially for someone who's not lean yet, right, interval training can kind of beat you up, right? Uh, running a mile is, I believe the statistics are 1,500 repetitions for a mile, right? So it's 1,500 plyometrics with forces of, the, the last stat I read, I've always said three to five. The last stat I read said it was between two to seven, depending on mechanics. Regardless, it's a lot of pounding on the joints, purely to burn calories and, and elevate, you know, metabolism. So we started looking at how can we do this with non-traditional exercises. And so we started doing things like body weight circuits and lunges and dumbbell stuff. And we found that I thought we would get close results. We actually get better results. But then we run into a problem that you're finishing a heavy strength workout on a Monday and you're coming in and doing intervals maybe on a Tuesday and you're kind of a little sore from the first workout. 
So we couldn't just do the same stuff. So we had to do essentially a a same type of a workout with short rest periods, sort of longer sets. So we got that same metabolic stimulus, but using a lighter load. So you may you may squat with weight on a Monday. You may do lunges with weight, and you may do uh, kettlebell swings, which are a high intensity exercise. But I think the heaviest, you know, kettlebell uh, that our clients are using is maybe like a 50 pounder for that type of work. So it's if you think about it as a as a uh, continuum that a heavy one rep max is a, is for any exercise, it's a hundred percent neural and cardio is a hundred percent metabolic. Well, there's things in between like like pushing the sled or hill sprints, which are heavier than jogging or pure cardio, but they're not heavy enough to be pure strength. So we found that the the best form of of interval training was to do a metabolic circuit and I, and I think there's the obvious choice is that you'll do your heavier weight training one day and when you do that interval training you start with just body weight stuff and maybe some things like ropes and stuff to, to mix it up but you can get it's, it's one of those things that we try it and we have an idea of what we think will happen and then it works way better than we were expecting so now that's sort of our formula. So really at our facility, the, for anyone who's not, we have an endurance team who competes at, at half marathons and triathlons and, and marathons. But anyone outside of them, uh, they really don't do any traditional uh, running-based cardio at all. With some of the kids and some of the athletes for, for some majority work, maybe. But in general, it's just, I think it's sort of an obsolete style of training when the goal is... Uh, cardio and uh, just burning calories. And I think people can take it and say, well, it's too hard to recover from. That's your ego. You're going too heavy. Right? You shouldn't be too hard to recover from. It should be hard, but it should be metabolically hard. You shouldn't be doing, you know, heavy stuff. So, the, so that works pretty well. And uh, so that, that sort of A-B approach to training where you maybe have a couple of heavier days and a couple of lighter days works well. And if you if you have a third day, we'll do some, some lighter cardio and some regeneration. So if you if you could train six days a week, um you'd have two two heavy days and two more metabolic days. Uh, and then I put in two what we call regeneration days, which would be, you know, maybe some lighter cardio, uh stretching, foam rolling, stuff like that. But you still it's super important for people to do. But I understand the time challenges for people today. And, uh, you know, it, it's hard for someone to commit to extra recovery workouts uh, and come to the gym for them. So it, it falls in later. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Now, hey, what about, uh, you mentioned that just having everything working, you know, doing the foam rolling, it might add a little bit to uh, how many calories you can burn or just, you know, the way obviously you're able to train better. You know, just talk about the importance of that because a lot of people are still kind of new to the foam rolling and the mobility stuff. So maybe just talk about how important that stuff is. Well, if you think of, like, calories burned for a fat loss client, is calorie is really a measure of work, right? And if we break work down, work can be <clears> – <throat> I know I'm sure that some physicists listening to this completely disagree with me, 
that work is often classified as distance over time. So if I take an exercise like a step up, I can and I can increase the range of motion at the hips, you can actually burn more calories in training. Right? So there's a very direct effect is that I have more range of motion. The the key part is that we don't improve by training. Training is a stimulus to create a response and the response is the improvement. But that response is when you recover. Right? So if you look at a traditional training graph, when we train we get worse, we break down. And because uh, people want to Google it, it's a super compensation curve. We break down, and over time we recover. And ideally, with a good stimulus, you recover and are now at a level above where you were before, because your body has super compensated. Well, the whole idea of training is we've spent so long studying that training impetus and how we can get it that all the adaptations come after training. So. The, the future of, of sort of sports science, or I guess the, the last couple of years, has been looking at how we can improve recovery so that you can train harder and you can train perhaps more often, right? Or, and you can train better. And it's just, if I could improve your every workout 5% as a result of the recovery, we'll compound that over three workouts a week, 12 a month, and 200 in a year, right, or whatever it you end up doing, do all those little increments uh, improve? So some of my theories that I can't prove, this is, the, this is the, the Black Ops Ninja stuff, is that I believe if you do foam rolling, you are, you are stirring up the tissue. If you're stirring up the tissue, you are stirring up the physiology and therefore have to ramp up metabolism as a result of that. I think if a joint is tight, like, we understand that muscle is a, is a large contributing factor to metabolic rate. But the muscles are responsible for movement. So if you don't move, all that muscle mass doesn't burn that many calories. You have to, muscle is responsible for movement. But if you look at something like a, a tight hip structure, or a tight hip flexor, well that muscle's not working properly. Therefore, Metabolism cannot be working properly because muscle is, is, feeds metabolism. So there's a lot of things we can do that, that I think if I, I took a deconditioned person and just had them do flexibility work and foam rolling, you'd see an increase in metabolism and a loss of body fat beyond what could be explained by just the exercise session itself. So that's a, I, I have a few, a lot of this is just, I don't think you can ever do anything to the body without affecting metabolism in some way. So this is a way of, like, it's, it's regeneration work to allow you to train harder, but it's also, in and of itself, I think it could be, uh, 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 you'll, you'll increase your training results by doing it because you can train harder, but even if you couldn't, you'll increase your results because I think this factors in with, with ramping up metabolism and, and physiology. Hey, so everyone who just, you know, thought that was pretty cool. They, and, but never heard of it. Have never heard of foam rolling or mobility. Shouldn't feel bad, because you've worked with some of the most famous athletes in the world. And uh, without mentioning any names, 
they got better simply because they improved something as simple as a side plank. So why don't you uh, tell us what you're allowed to tell us without uh, getting killed by the professional athletes that have hired you? Yeah, well, I was uh, asked to uh, work with a a professional athlete uh, last year. He's having some problems. And so I looked at his training and assessed him, and the best way to describe it is there, there's a, a base, and this may come from Great Cook, there's a base of movement uh, that everybody needs to have. And above that, you've got, like, your strength and power, right, and, and your speed and all your biomotor qualities. And on the top of that is your performance. So if you look at that as a pyramid, this base is movement. So with a lot of people, if you think of uh, maybe a a ballerina or someone who's very flexible and has a good range of motion but is kind of frail, that would be somebody that we would call underpowered. So we break down the training. like They don't need to move better. We just need to get them stronger. We just need to get them them faster. But I'm looking at this guy, and, and after we tested him, his, his biomotor stuff, his speed and his strength is there. But when I did some screening, he just he literally couldn't hold a side plank for more than 10 seconds. He just never trained that. So I started doing some other stuff with him. You know, he can he could he could squat a, a decent amount of weight, but when I put him in a split squat, he could split squat above what he could squat. Now. People like, well, you get two legs working and two legs working. What, what's the difference here? Well, a, a split squat or a, or a lunge, if you want to call it that, has a wider base of support. So the core stability is not challenged as much. And when I say core stability, I don't just mean abs. I mean lower back, glutes, everything. So if I can have you, let's say you can squat 200 pounds, Craig, and I have you move to a lunge. If you can squat more, that's a sign that the base of support is different. So as I broke down uh, with with this guy, we just we we jumped it down to I just started bringing in what I call stability challenging exercises, not balanced exercise, but things like uh, like side planks. That was the, that was the big that was the the master key, right? To find the one thing. And once we built that up, we do things like uh, you know heavy heavy split squats with one dumbbell or one kettlebell on one side. So that we're challenging stability all the time, and he went back home and really turned his season around. Uh, I love to say it was just me. There's a whole bunch of other people involved, but you—it's often it's not that you just need to work harder. Right? It's I've always laughed at these programs where it's like, hey, my my biceps aren't growing. What what should I do? And they did a routine that just has more bicep curls. They did. Do we really think that the problem is just that this teenage boy was not curling enough, right? Now, if it is that, that's an easy fix. Like I, I can't do chin ups. What should I do? Try this. It's just a lot of chin ups. Like you have to find like the the the, the weak link. It's like a, it's like an arm bar in, in jiu jitsu or martial arts. You can be in perfect position, but until you apply that last little bit of pressure, which appears no different from what you're already doing, it doesn't work at all. And that's what I do with these guys. Is I, like, I troubleshoot a program to find something, 
I mean, this guy in particular, you, I'll be honest, you're going in thinking you got to bring some crazy Bulgarian shock training to the scenario to improve this guy, and you're finding something real basic, right? And and it's just it it's like the the best way I can I can describe it is if you're taking your car in to get you know a bigger engine put in, that your front end's out of alignment and your back tire is missing. Right, there's some simple things you can do to get more power out of it. You know, it's the the releasing the brakes philosophy. That it's not always about putting more your foot on the accelerator harder. It's about you know removing some of the limitations that are already there. That's pretty darn cool. Um, so there's a lot uh, a lot of similarities between regular folks training and and making the best better even. Well, I think that's the, the, that's the part that strength coaches don't like to tell you. But training an elite guy's usually easier because they're so talented. Right? But it's just riskier because you don't want to screw them up. Like, the, the general population, I think, poses a challenge because there's just, these are not gifted athletes. Right? So there's, I'm always more, and there's so much, if you think there's misinformation at a sports level, the general population, you know, there's there's people who think you can wear shoes and your butt's going to look better. You know, there's still, like, you and I love conversation. Like, we're talking about self-limiting exercise and, you know, two two phase, two phase load phases for metabolic conditioning. But there's people out there still, you know, thinking that they'll drink, you know, cider vinegar and, and lose body fat. And these are the people, like, I, I actually get more of a kick out of, I, it's cool being like the the hired gun who goes in to help an athlete with a program, uh, or eval a bunch of people, um, and uh, it's cool just helping regular people uh, in my head. I, I get more of a kick out of that, to be honest. Very nice, very nice. Um, so... Let's kind of switch gears now and talk about some stuff that has nothing, well, has something to do with training. So, the UFC fight, you were talking a little bit about that and uh, how it had a one minute of action. So, what what was your take on the whole thing? Should they have had another fight or what? Well, I think there's, there's uh, I'm looking at this purely from a, a business point of view. This was the showcase event on Free Network TV and it, it lasted a minute. And, uh, I don't think they could have another fight because they only had a one-hour show, which when you factor in uh, uh, commercial breaks, I think is 44 minutes or something in the U.S. So a fight, uh, it, it was a championship fight which goes five five-minute rounds with a one-minute rest. So so you end up with about a 30-minute period of time before uh, the result and for the commence. I don't think they could have had another fight. But I wonder if it will help them to get to the next level of business because you you had an opportunity, and I, there's no one to blame for this. You had an opportunity to expose your sport, your business, to a whole new clientele. And what was delivered was 64 seconds of what I would consider as a, as a long-time martial artist and a fan of, of multiple combat sports, sloppy boxing. Right, it wasn't, there was no real technical ability and, and it really, the first punch landed ended the fight. Um, so I don't, I think 
martial arts fans appreciate it. I think UFC fans would like it. But I think the the general population who've never seen this before would say that just looks like boxing, only not as good. So I don't know if they could have maybe had a a highlight reel of, you know, kicks and submissions and a whole bunch of stuff ready to go, but I don't think this was a was was what they had planned as evidenced by after that they, they built up their champion so much um, in Cain Velasquez and he lost with really the first punch that was landed the, the Dana White is the I'm not sure his exact position president of the UFC uh, director I don't know he just kind of went on a tirade afterwards about what Velasquez did wrong because they're sort of embarrassed that you presented this as your, your superstar champion and he got knocked out with the first punch, I think. So I don't think anybody's to blame. I'm just, I'd be, you know, if I got one minute on network TV across the entire country to showcase my gym, and it came down to somebody doing a couple of reps of a bicep curl with dumbbells, I'd be kind of bummed, you know. It doesn't really show the, the extent of what we do. Right on. So did you watch the Pacquiao fight? Oh, of course I did. And who won? <laughs> I think Marquez won uh, seven hours to five. I uh, I don't have a problem with a, a draw or a Pacquiao win. I've a, one of the scorecards is so one-sided. That's that's not real. Like, I scored a seven hours to five. Uh, I watched it again without listening to the commentators and no one at my house, so I could just because I'm a geek. Now I just see if my opinion was the same. And seven hours to five means that if the if I had scored one round the other way, it's a draw. And it was that kind of fight. There was some close rounds. If I'd scored two rounds the other way, uh, Pacquiao wins. But the the one scorecard came in, it just was so, so one-sided. It's just, I don't know. I don't, I don't like to say um, that it was biased as much as it was incompetent. I just can't see that fight. That was a one-sided fight in one guy's eyes. I don't think... Anyone's there, and there's evidence by the crowd just booing the result. You know, Pacquiao's the golden yeah. child right now. Uh, the crowd was just booing the result. Like that's people, people there. They don't hear commentators. They're not swayed by what we see on TV. They're they're watching it. You know, and but I'm always at the same point. I like a a professional. When you're there watching it, and you're you know with your friends talking, and you get distracted, and you know, a professional judge doesn't get to do that, so I got no. I thought it was a really close fight; could have went either way. I, I just I've watched it a couple of times, and I still think Marquez won. I can't see that that one guy's decision is interesting. And uh, the reason why I'm asking Alan these questions is because he's a student of the fight game, and he was a world champion Taekwondo guy. So you also went to the Hopkins fight, right? Yeah, Hopkins. Oh, let's skip that one. <laughs> Hopkins Dawson. Yeah, um, it is. Hopkins is just so experienced and so, to be honest, always in, even when it looks like he's not in it, he's in control. He's slowing the pace down, and and I just got the opinion that he was gonna win it based on what I was seeing. And Dawson was getting frustrated because Dawson just he got in the clinch and Dawson picked him up and dumped him on his shoulder and popped his shoulder. And it was, I don't, 
the the WBC overturned. They originally gave it as a Dawson win, and the WBC have overturned it and made it a no contest. But the California State Athletic Commission hasn't overturned it yet. They don't meet till till December. How do I know this stuff? That's ridiculous to know this much obscure information. <laughs> what round? So, yeah, I like bo- I like I like boxing. What round did it finish? Yeah. Second round. Oh. You must have been yeah. so upset. Yeah, I wasn't excited, man. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a long way to um to to go in an a, a expensive ticket for a, a four minute contest. But hey, that's people always say like, oh, I, I get mad when that happens in boxing. But Tyson was one of the most popular fighters of all time, and he did that on a, a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, he earned his win. So, all right, so. Uh, I was at my chiropractor this morning, and we were talking about, uh, you know, he asked me how old I was, and, and you know, he said I was holding up pretty well for my age. And, and we had we kind of got into this discussion about when people's bodies really slow down in terms of their strength and, and speed. And, and, you know, we're talking about Hopkins there, who's, what, 45? Yeah, some ridiculous height. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. you know, we get – I'm sure you get the same emails that I do from people of all ages, you know, from 40 to 35, 30. I get emails from guys who are 25 and talking about if they can ever get in shape again. So what's your opinion? Uh, is it simply all individual and how much time you're going to put into, you know, your preparation work and, and proper training and nutrition that can really keep somebody going and staying fit for a long time? Well, I, I think it's the it's the old uh, analogy about cars, right? It's not the age, it's the mileage. Like I think uh, after years of of uh, contact and combat fights, and then two rounds of chemo, my my body was way more beat up than somebody at the same age as me. You know, just because of what you went through. I think Hopkins is. I, I have this. I have this fascination with athletic longevity for what separates a guy like a like a Hopkins when you see guys coming out like Francisco Bajardo comes out, David Reed comes out of the Olympics and, and his career is very short and, and Hopkins goes a long time that I, I don't know, I, I think there's a definite uh, difference in, in terms of, of what to do with somebody but I think it's unrelated to to age exactly it's related to sort of mileage in the body and i uh well how long did hopkins go to jail for i think it was i think that was before he was 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 fighting that was a long time ago so he was there for I oh think so if he wasn't a boxer years. before he went to jail no he come out and, and turned it around so he may just have kept his his body Clean, like it, it's as we know it. It's for, if you're lean, there's a lot of people who can eat very poorly when they're when they're lean and stay relatively lean. Um, I've always felt like like genetically, there's there's people who can just start training and they drop fat, and others who just eat cleaner and drop fat, and others who just eat the right amounts and drop fat. I was the guy who had to do all three together, right, or nothing would happen. Uh, so okay. I think there's a there's something about uh, like like aging that we're not understanding. Like they can 
you know, Joe Calzaghe retired at 37. Hopkins is, is 46 and beat uh, Jean Pascal from 29 years old. Uh, David David Beckham, uh, with millions and millions at his disposal for trainers, nutritionists, and therapists, has has declined. Tom Watson won a senior PGA championship at 61. Right, so I wonder. I don't. There doesn't seem to be anything related to just chronological age. I think there's a lot. I know I've told this story before. When I got out of the hospital, was, my dad came over to visit me. And, and uh, every day I was doing as many push-ups as I could as part of my sort of comeback workout. And I think I, out of the hospital, I could do five or six. And my dad did ten clapping his hands. Right? Complete plyo machine, right? But a year later, I was over visiting him. And... I said, right, let's have a rematch. It was a year, year and a half later, and he couldn't get in position, Craig, to do one push-up. Now, the only thing that had happened in that time is there's no way you went from from 10 plyometric push-ups to unable to hold a position for one in 18 months without a severe injury, and he never had one. What happened is he'd retired from work, and he just stopped moving, really. He had a physical job, and he stopped moving. So I have a theory that there is... Training has to change partly with age, but partly it's just due to lifestyle and other factors. If I, when I was training in college, if I was too beat up and sore, I just wouldn't go to class the next day. You don't have that option uh, as an adult, you know? Right? If you're, you're a 45-year-old guy with, with two kids, you don't have the option of training so hard that you can't walk the next day and you just take a couple of days off of work. So a lot of this stuff is it's other factors that it's not, you know, you 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 have other stresses in your body. I, I don't know who 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 said it. Uh, Poneman, I think, is a guy that stress is like like water running into a sink, and every stressor is a different a different tap, a different faucet, and once it overflows, you're going to break down. So. It's short-sighted of us to just look at training volume as the only stressor we can control. Right? If somebody's going through, you know, a, a divorce, a, a family member's sick, um, they're going to lose their house, lost their job, but that person might be 22, right? But their body and the, the, is going to respond like it's a little older. So it's it's sort of a roundabout way of saying I think age is a is a factor in training volume. And, and wear and tear, but there's the wear and tear on a you know 22-year-old UFC fighter is probably going to be more than a you know a 42-year-old accountant uh, if the accountant has stayed relatively healthy. I think there's a, a a use thing, not just an age thing. Very cool. Well, uh, that's a good place to to end our call today and. We'll come back in a couple months and chat a little bit more about that after you, we both had some time to think about that. All right, but like on our clients as well. Yeah, I think it's a. There's, we've all got the superstar. We have a client just in the local newspaper. He's 50 years old and he's a police officer and he's a, a, a in great shape. But he's a, he says he's in the best shape of his life, but he didn't arrive at our gym in horrible condition. You know, he'd been active his whole life, so he responds well to training. He recovers well. 
and I've got other people that were constantly monitoring loading and you know you, you got to cut sets and even at a certain point like if you can squat 200 pounds well anything over 100 pounds even in a warm-up is training load so with some people you have to be careful how many warm-up sets you do because it, it's all load so it's uh, <laughs> just to listen to this call start thinking about it and, and uh, sometimes pulling back with some clients gets them better results right yeah good point and then putting in more of the mobility and foam rolling stuff. So going back yeah, to the foam rolling to just stuff. Sit, right? You can, you can, uh, it, it's when I say, you know, rest, we don't, you can do mobility and stretching and activation work that's very low level uh, stressors in between sets and stuff. Yeah, and where would you rank, you know, putting mobility and foam rolling into somebody's program on a scale of 1 to 10? Would you say it's 10 or an 8? Uh, I mean, it's it's hard because everything's important. If, but if you didn't have time to do mobility and form rolling, I would pull something else. So it might be the most important. You know, like it's it's the I don't want to say it's more important than strength for a power lifter or more important than cardio for an endurance athlete. But this is like. Like, I've got to take care of the, the tissue before I have the tissue to perform better. So if you said, hey, I'm running late today. i got to get out of here in 25 minutes. What do we do? And I'm like, right, we'll do foam rolling, mobility, and core. And we'll get the strength and conditioning stuff done another time. And so I've never cut that. So I guess if that my answer to that is then it's got to be, it's got to be the, the number one priority. It's, it's got to be a 10. It, what happens with people who don't it, – it's one of these things for people who don't don't need it, enjoy it. <laughs> like it said, when I was uh, like for static stretching and when I was doing taekwondo, I'd, I would find it very relaxing to hold a stretch for a long period of time. Other people are grimacing in pain. And that's the, the problem is that when you're really tight and sore, the foam roller hurts. That's a sign you need it. Right, but it's hard to get somebody to do something that uncomfortable. Uh, but it's, uh, I think it's probably if I, you know, if I could just get, you know, my dad's almost 69 now. Uh, if I could get him to do one thing, it would be foam rolling and, and mobility. Quality of life is based on, I think, with, with, with the real aging population, on, on tissue quality, range of motion, and the ability to produce power. I think our, our focus on on cardiac health is, is obviously important and our focus on muscle is important but I think we missed the boat. I think the muscle declines because we're not using it. I think that and you start doing that because you'll, you'll hear, I'll watch you know, an old person reach for something and they, you'll, you'll, everybody listening to this will remember, I'll picture as they, they reach for something or bend to tie their shoes with an involuntary groan like, oh, like it's a max effort thing. Like that that's a sign that that's the first thing to go. You know? That obviously the that the when you look at it the the to not to be morbid, but the last thing to go is obviously the heart. Right? But people lose their quality of life and ability to move around and get in and out of cars, up and down stairs because of of mobility and, and tissue issues way before they lose cardiovascular health. Yeah, that's uh that's what I believe too. And then, 
you know, I've, I do 20 to 25 minutes, maybe in 30 minutes before every workout, mobility and foam rolling. And, and my shoulders haven't been better in years. And, uh, you know, I'm just able to beat myself down in training and still allow myself to do that because of the foam rolling and the band pulls and the stretches that I do before training. And yeah, now we, it's just like, it's just like any, any we, other part of training. It was, it was we, not we the most fun as, uh, thing in the world to get started with, but it's important. Yeah. It, it starts to feel good as you loosen off. What, what we've stretched to is we do 15 minutes in the beginning and then between every, like if we do split squat and dumbbell roll, then instead of staying 90 seconds rest, it may be 15 seconds rest, then a hip flexor stretch each side for 30 seconds. So we put it in between the work sets too, just to increase the volume of it. Because our challenge has always been we need to get these people in shape and let them enjoy this workout. I need as much of this as possible. But there, there is a part of, of foam rolling and stretching that's, that's kind of relaxing, and I'm, then I want people to get fired up and do something. So we fit it in between work sets to get in some extra volume there. Yeah, that's exactly it, man. That's, and that kind of is a sneaky way of getting it in so that people, you know, don't think, oh, i got to go and do this warm-up before I actually get into my training. So throwing it in there as well is almost the third exercise in the tri-set. Bang, yeah, and, and that's a, a perfect way. And the other way is to make the warm-up, you know, a little more – I think when people are, are – I don't think – our clients know it's a warm-up, but I think if you saw me do this – in, a, in the park, if I was doing a boot camp or I was doing a bodyweight class, you wouldn't know where it ended and where the next part of the, the workout began because you can make a warm-up fun and multi-planar and, you know, it doesn't have to be this. I've always felt that there's some people who feel like it's this, this drudgery they have to get over with before they really start training. I guess that's our coaching issue. you got to program your clients to understand that this is part of the training. This is maybe the most important part. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's, uh, hopefully some people on the call will take their warm-up seriously and, you know, get that foam roller and add it to their, their system because in terms of the long view, it's really, really, really going to make a difference. Well, it's the best, it's the, the poor man's massage therapist, right? If we could, if you get a massage every day, you'd love it, right? This is the, this is the way we can do it without having a, you know, pay for a massage therapist every day. Yeah, exactly. Well, sir, uh, we're out of time here. That was a really good call. It's always good to talk to you again. And I right. uh, really appreciate everything you shared there. All right. Cheers, man. I'm looking forward to All right. Thanks to again. And everybody, yeah, what's your blog, again, for people to check out? It's just my name, alancosgrove.com, A-L-W-Y-N-C-O-S. G-R-O-V-E.com. It's just my name that you can't spell, dot com. Just my name that you can't spell. Hey, as I said on a call with you before, if I can make money on the Internet with a name spelled like that, anybody can make money on the Internet, right? <laughs> That's exactly it, man. That's exactly it. All right, sir. Thank you very much, and thank you to everybody being on the call. This is just another uh, little chit-chat we're having mm-hmm. about training and all the good stuff that my friend Alan Cosgrove knows about. So check out his website. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye, everyone. Cheers, man.